Hi, I'm Helleth Kendrick. And I'm Chris Keane. And this is the Recruit for Spouses podcast. Welcome to episode 13. Now, the number 13 is unlucky for some. Not for us, though, because today we're talking to the UK's first ever female fighter jet pilot. Her name is Jo Salter. So let's hear her story and what that was like for her. It was amazing, brilliant, hard. It was terrifying. It was lonely as well at times. I think it's the combination of everything. And I was young. And I do think that there is something about when we are young. I mean, I started flying at the age of 21 and I was on a frontline squadron by the age of 24. I suppose as we get older, we have more responsibility, we have more concerns, we have more worries. I just felt quite free. I've got two big brothers as well as my sister. So I am very used to a male and female company. So the fact that I ended up in an extremely male environment didn't bother me. I had studied maths, physics and electronic systems at A-level. So again, the experience was challenging, exhilarating, and I feel blessed to have had the opportunity. It was also really hard work being the first to do that because of the spotlight, because of the attention. And I sort of wish I could go back and do it all again, knowing everything I do now, now I'm so much older, because I would care so much less about what people were thinking, because I would just get on with it and love every moment. So in terms of your career then, as a fighter pilot, were you involved in any sort of conflicts or engagements? I policed the no-fly zone in northern and southern Iraq. I was doing basic flying training during the first Gulf War. And then I was on maternity leave sort of during the second time when we were back over there. So I was in the interim period where we policed the no-fly zone. And that meant operating out of Turkey. So I did a couple of deployments out of Turkey into Lick Air Force Base, into northern Iraq, and then one out of Saudi Arabia into southern Iraq as well. And were there any moments that just really stood out from your career? You know, even today, thinking back to yourself, like, wow, that was amazing. My first ever flight where I fell in love, it was in a chipmunk. We'd already done all of our ground school. We had to do our survival training. And then I remember being taken up on my first trip and just falling in love with it. Just absolutely adoring this sensation. The only other place that I get the sensation I get in the air is deep under the sea scuba diving there's sort of that's that same feeling of peace that I get and I will always remember receiving my first fast jet wings at Aria Valley in 1992 the 4th of April and I remember those being pinned on my chest and forevermore such a proud moment so as I was saying earlier I've got a little girl called Holly she's 18 months old and I want her to reach for the stars in this life I want her to be whatever she wants to be and talking to you today you're such an inspiration you know being the UK's first ever female fighter jet pilot that's amazing and I am going to be playing this podcast to Holly when she's a bit older to inspire her if she needs the inspiration. But I'm just curious, were there any barriers that stood in the way of you becoming that first female fighter pilot? Without a doubt. And what I've had to appreciate, because a lot of people say to me, oh my goodness, what do your girls want to do? Because I'm a mother to two girls. And they also were like, oh my goodness, I need to do something big with my life. Well, actually, when I look at everything I have done, my biggest achievement, are my two daughters. And I think that giving self-esteem 
and confidence to young people, whether they be boys or girls as they grow up. And, you know, I always said to my girls, you're born as this helpless baby. And when you're 18, you need to be a free thinking young person who can make decisions and go out in life. And I need to take you from one to the other. And I haven't done this before, so we sort of need to learn together. And the fact that they don't want to become an astronaut is all right. Hmm. The fact that they want to follow their own dreams is okay as well. And if they're not academic or they're not X, they're not Y, it just doesn't matter. When we ever do something new that hasn't been done before, there will always be barriers because people are resistant to change. And people are often resistant to change because they just don't understand what that's going to mean often for them. Often it can be the individuals concerned who are being impacted by your being there that may respond in a way, again, their own fear, their own sense of imposter syndrome or lack of self-esteem. And that's something that I recognise that often some of the barriers are just because people either didn't want to change or were worried about what it would mean to them. I think having a great sense of humour helped a lot. I think I used to ring my mum and cry down the phone to her. And I remember saying when I was going through flying training, it doesn't matter that I can do this. It doesn't matter that I'm actually a really good pilot. They're not ready for me to do it. But it didn't matter that people weren't ready. It still needed to happen because mm. actually it's a brain operating a machine. It's irrelevant of gender, of race, of creed. This is just about human being operating a machine that has been built by another human being. But one of the other barriers that I will mention was that women tended not to fit on average. The reason we didn't fit is because the design had been around the typical man. So what they'd taken is 20 years before I, I was flying that they had designed the aircraft around men. So I think, again, when we think about equality today, are we designing everything around the human rather than about one sector of the population? Mm -hmm. You don't really think about it that way. Well, I haven't anyway. You know, a piece of kit being built around a particular sex. Quite interesting to think about. So let's go outside the jet now. You know, you've had a hard day flying. You want to go chill out in the mess. Quite a male-dominated environment, I'm sure. Did you ever feel any kind of negative vibes being that female surrounded by loads of men? No. So that's a really interesting question and none whatsoever. But what I was really aware of is that I needed to be friends with the spouses and, and they were all wives in the squadron that I was in. It was a very important thing for me to do to make some female friends and build those relationships. It became a real family. You know, I really didn't feel much stigma at all. I think there was a competition perhaps sometimes in the squadron. Once you have achieved your wings, it's recognised that you have done that through merit. And that is always accepted because the thing about flying something like a fast jet is you can't hide. The only person who's flying that jet is you. Mm. The only person who is responsible for whether you fly well or badly is you. And it's all open and transparent and your scores on the bombing range or whatever it may be are all out there. But certainly in the, in the mess, it was all part of just one big family. So we've spoken about a few negatives, you know, barriers getting in your way. Let's talk now about the support you got. You know, during this whole experience, you mentioned talking to your mum down the phone. What other support did you get? It's a funny one you should ask that because I say it was like a huge change programme within the Royal Air Force at the time 
with um, absolutely no change, communication, support or anything. So my support came through friends, whether they be in the Air Force or whether they be family, because I probably didn't have any friends outside the Air Force because I joined, like I said, when I was 18 and spent 12 years full time service. So friends, definitely. And I was a bit lonely. You know, it's the only way I can say that. And I think without having had my mum to call on the phone, I mean, it was the days before mobile phones even, I don't quite know how I would have managed when things were tough. I could have done with a mentor and a support, but I'm not sure I would have accepted it when I was in my young 20s because I was quite hot-headed and quite determined. I always laugh that my stubbornness is determination, depending on which way you decide to describe it. Mm. And who knows how I would have responded at the time. I was going to say, do you think you would have joined the Women's Network? Do you know what? I don't know. I don't know for me then. Now, yes, absolutely. Mm. Me as a 24-year-old, I, I wouldn't have wanted to seem different. I never wore makeup ever with my uniform. You know, I had my flying suit on and my boots, you know, my hair in a ponytail. I tried to be quite, not masculine, but not feminine. I tried mm. to be quite asexual, I suppose, is the best way to describe it. Just to be there doing a job and not reminding everybody that I was female amongst this whole group of guys. Yeah. And you flew with the Red Arrows, didn't you? I did a few years ago. So I'm an honorary group captain on 601 Squadron, which is a, a Royal Auxiliary Air Force squadron. And I was up at, I can't even remember why I was up there, but I was up at Lincolnshire at Scampton and I happened to take my flying suit and my boots in the car just in case <laughs> and they were doing a practice and I managed to go and fly in the back of Red 2. Oh my goodness, it was fantastic. That's awesome. And it's so true what you said earlier as well about aspirations and following your dreams. I mentioned Holly reaching for the stars, becoming whatever she wants to become. And as you said, it doesn't need to be something massive like an astronaut. If Holly wants to be a hairdresser or a cleaner, that's OK. Follow your dreams. Just don't let anybody stand in your way. It's true. And I did want to be a hairdresser when I was a teenager and I was a cleaner. So that's how I used to earn my money when, you know, babysitting and cleaning jobs as a teenager. And my mum wouldn't allow me to do, I did these old things called O-levels and she wouldn't allow me to do needlework and home economics. She made me do the sciences because she told me it would buy me opportunity. Mm. So we're, we're full circle back to that opportunity. And she was right. But do you know what? My hobby is sewing and I still love to cook. So these things that we enjoy, and if you can ever find a job that's something that we love doing and we have a passion about, then time just goes by. It doesn't separate off the, oh my goodness, I'm going to work. It's actually really enjoyable. And I think that if work can be enjoyable, then what we have done is we have been extremely successful in yeah. what we've set out to do. I was grinning from ear to ear listening to that, particularly when you talked about your flight in Red 2, because I remember watching it on TV somewhere. It's just an incredible moment, isn't it? And it's just wonderful that you've got that opportunity as well. It really is. And I am friends with Kirsty who was the only female Red Arrows pilot we've had. And she flies for the Blades. And a couple of years ago, I went to fly with her as well. And that was really good fun, flying with the Blades. So I've had the Red Arrows and the Blades aerobatics team. And now you're, tell us about what you're doing now. I currently work at PwC. I'm a director in our risk business, doing technology strategy. And I have worked for the Open University Business School for 17 years prior to that. 
I ran my own consulting company before I joined PwC. I worked for a systems integrator. I'm still a volunteer in the Royal Air Force. I'm on 601 Squadron and I spent 12 years flying air cadets as a volunteer as well. So I think out of my 30 years of work, I have spent 24 of them still either full-time in the Air Force or as a volunteer. That's great. So you're very busy and it's a new, completely new career now. So you're doing a lot now with helping more women get into tech. Can you tell us a little bit more about that, please? I remember not knowing what to do when I left school and we had this bus that arrived and it was called the WISE bus, Women in Science and Engineering. And so back in the 80s, it was still encouraging women to study science, to look at engineering, to look at those technology subjects. And I just thought it was really interesting. So studied it myself. However, I still see so few women and I don't quite know what happens during the school years, because when you look at coding clubs, when kids are eight years old or nine years old, there are equal numbers. But somehow when we get into teens, that girls sort of drop off more. So that's been something that's always been really important to me. We have an amazing programme about women in tech at PwC. And in fact, we've even now employed a teacher and asked the teacher to build some lesson packs that we then made publicly available, not just for girls, for boys and girls, so that they would really feel engaged because technology is about being confident. I have this big thing about digital confidence and just feeling that you can have a go. And of course, as we continue to become more technologically advanced over time, we're going to just need the sorts of skills that some of us might find more challenging. We just need to get in there and do that. So very close to my heart. And how would you say, how would we develop digital confidence? Because that's some term that is not used very often, that we've heard very often. So how would you develop that and encourage that in young women? I think firstly, to just understand that nobody knows how to do anything unless they learn it. I think it's really easy, especially when we're young, to look at other people who know how to do something and assume that they just knew and that therefore we could never get to that. And the truth is that we have to give things a go. We have to be open to new opportunities, to new experiences, to be able to continue to learn and adapt. And I think secondly, to think about how could a digital tool help somebody in their normal workplace or in their everyday life be more efficient and if you think about 20 years ago where we didn't have our iPhones yet now here we are even recording a podcast on one today the tools that we have at our fingertips now are so very very different and who knows what's going to come in the future with machine learning and and AI and I think to remain relevant it's just so important to be open to that learning and understand that continual learning is part of a really good, rich life pattern. One of the things that military spouses find that posted to Africa for two years or Germany or America, that they feel that they're very much out of the loop and they they sort of say, I don't even know where to start. So many spouses, for example, haven't been on LinkedIn. And, you know, LinkedIn is something that is massive now in the last five years. But if you haven't worked for over five years, most of them don't have a LinkedIn profile. So, So what would you say to a military spouse who has absolutely no idea where they should start they've had a career they're a little bit unsure but as far as digital is concerned what would you say would be the first step that they took to improve their sort of digital knowledge LinkedIn is used by recruiters all of the time I mean I've been on LinkedIn 
a very long time, but I don't think I use it very well. I don't think that it's something which which I focused on and probably should do more of or would do more of if that was something necessary at this point and stage in my life, I suppose. However, I do think for anybody who's looking for a new career, who is stretching out to something different, using LinkedIn as a tool is really, really important just because of the fact that the recruiters are on there. I think that's one part of it. The second part to do with using technology is how much open learning there is. You know, I mentioned about working for the OU Business School. There's something called Open Learn, which is material. You may not get a certificate at the end of it, but there's the opportunity to just be able to do almost any course. I mean, I know Harvard do them, all sorts of different open access courses where people can just start to stretch themselves and think, well, what about this and what about that? The final thing I'd say on that is it is good because it can feel overwhelming with a raft of information out there as to know quite what to do. I think it's really good to consider where do I actually want to be in five years time? I always say if I could wave a magic wand, what would my life look like? I could click my fingers and be there in five years and there were no barriers. If I could draw that out, if I could articulate that clearly, then what steps do I need to do to help me get there? And of course, we know that we never end up quite where we plan to get to when we write goals, but certainly it gives us direction and helps us narrow the scope or the breadth when there's so much information out there. We say to a lot of spouses about goal setting is just start with something, isn't it? So maybe that would be a good start with them. But we find a lot with spouses as well is that when they do then get to the interview stage, they're finding themselves in, in a situation where they have to have difficult conversations. So, for example, an employer would say to them, well, you've, you have a few gaps in your CV. And immediately that lack of confidence steps in and they start mm. to have imposter syndrome. And, and there's all these underlying issues. And they've, as you would know, they've gone through a lot to get to where they are today and would have built up a lot of resilience and adaptability and all these skills we talk about. But having a difficult conversation is actually quite hard for a military spouse because they very quickly go back into their their sort of own zone of confidence. What would you say to a military spouse who is in an interview situation and is asked a question about their gaps in their CV? How would you encourage them to open up about their skills, like their adaptability and things like that? The first thing, again, I always like to split things in my head, you see, I compartmentalise in my head. And it immediately makes me think that, again, in an interview situation, there's something about compartmentalising and how we manage that. And somebody said to me when I did an interview a few years ago, be yourself, but be a very slightly brighter, jollier, happier version of yourself. Because actually what people want to see is the authentic individual. What an organisation is looking for is good talent and good talent's hard to find. And actually when you have good talent, people want to hang on to it. I suffer from imposter syndrome. And when I say that to people, people are like, oh, but you've done all of these things. And sometimes I think I do all of these things because of my imposter syndrome. It's like a a vicious circle in many ways. And what I found helpful as a tool is to look at the person who's interviewing me that may make me feel challenged, may make me feel that perhaps I shouldn't be there and think that they probably think exactly the same and they feel the same way at that point in time. And I think when you recognise that everybody's just trying to make their own path on their own journey, it sort of rebalances the playing field rather than it being somebody sat up on a hill giving us the interview, looking at us down further. And so I think immediately using that 
vision of leveling the interview and looking at somebody face to face and thinking about them being equal can be really helpful. The other tip, and everyone will have heard this before, is to fake it until you make it. I again have a couple of people that I've worked with over the years who laughingly say, when I don't know what to do, I model my inner Joe. So think of somebody you know who would cope with it differently and think about how they would behave and sort of wear the mantle and and hold yourself up further and just think, do you know what? I'm going to model that behaviour that I know I could do and shrink those insecurities because this is what we're talking about. And it's hard. I mean, I, I remember going back to work after I had both of my children and it's really hard. And I recognise that when young women come back to work with me now that that transition can be really hard and they perhaps haven't had those gaps in the careers the same way that a military spouse has that's been enforced so again it does all come back to confidence and a feeling of this person would be lucky to have me and if they choose not to have me then that's okay because actually i'm going to go and do something else and i think once you can stop it mattering so much then it just allows that energy to sort of calm down and relax and allows you to be your authentic self. That's so true. And imposter syndrome is something that we all suffer from. And I know that many military spouses massively subjugate their careers in order to just for an easier life, because they think, well, I, you know, I was once a barrister, but working in Tesco's or being a teaching assistant is so much easier. So I'm just going to go for that. So What would you say to the spouses that are sort of about to make that move to subjugate their career for an easy life? Would you encourage them to do that? Or would you sort of give them some advice around how would you go for those bigger jobs? How would they even start to think about it? I would ask why to start with. Why is that the job that you want to go to? Because I think also it's all right not to have a big job. So I think that that question of why and honestly answering that, why am I making this decision? Because if the reason is that you think you might not get the other job, my mum has this saying, which is, you definitely won't get it if you don't apply. And that's one of my, I suppose, main mantras in life. And I say it to my girls all the time, is that you have to give things a go to have a chance of getting in there. And if there are other jobs that actually you would like to do, but feel nervous about or feel worried about, then what is it that's holding you back? What is it that's hindering you? And spending time self-reflecting and understanding what what's limiting you what's stopping you and then changing your narrative and saying you know for example i did a lot of work on this on myself some years ago which was you're just not good enough was my limiting paradigm or mantra and i had to re-say well you are good enough you know what is good enough yes you are good enough and re-say it to myself and recognize that the behaviors i would naturally portray and naturally step into, perhaps weren't going to be of benefit to me in the future. And of course, the reason our brain does that is that our brain is just trying to protect us because it doesn't want to be hurt. And so sometimes what I say is I say, thank you, brain. Thank you for trying to protect me and help me, but that's not helpful right now because I need to go and do this anyway. And it's about feeling the fear and doing it anyway and recognizing what is it we're frightened of? What is it? but also knowing that if what you want to do is a job that will enable a lifestyle that's right for you now, then that is all right as well. I was looking at some of your interviews yesterday and one of the things that really jumped out was your, you said that you were introduced on stage because you do a lot of public speaking now. Um, Uh, I know the one you're talking about. So it's quite a few years ago. I've 
I've written a couple of books on using personal energy to achieve. And I was asked to speak at an event about it and about energy. And the gentleman that was introducing me has a great deal of energy and external energy. And he he leapt out onto the stage. I mean, it really was a physical jump in the air as he came out and he said, you know, I'm delighted to tell you that now we have by popular acclaim and bringing to the stage Joe Salter like this. And of course, then he left and I was just stood there and I thought, my goodness, how, how does one follow that? I mean, I, I'm good at reacting and responding quickly. I sort of just took a deep breath and I just in a really calm voice said, I would like everybody, please, to close your eyes and I would like everybody for one moment to take a deep breath in and out. And I would like you just to think about that inner core of energy, that quiet, silent energy that sits within us and realize that energy isn't always about being out there, but sometimes it's about having that calm energy within. And then I moved the energy back up to then be able to deliver my speech. It's very interesting how energy is such an important thing to do with how we operate and how other people can take it with them. And we own our own energy and what we can do to manage that. You know, it takes some thinking about, but really does sort of shift and change how we're interacting with other human beings. Energy is an interesting one because with the pandemic over the last year, we've all been on Zoom calls, we've all been on Google calls and something similar happened when I was doing a presentation. How would you encourage somebody? How would they get good energy? I mean, what would they do in that environment where they're in an interview or they're on a Zoom interview? How would they get that good energy? What would you say to somebody trying to do that? It's very easy to be nervous in such situations. And I try and take that nervousness because I still feel it when I'm about to do something, when I'm about to do a speech on stage, I will feel the butterflies. And I just think that this is the adrenaline. This is the nervousness that's going to allow me to really give a good display. It's going to be the energy that courses around my veins. And I actually visualize it moving around my body and sort of projecting out there. I as long as nobody can see me, will potentially do the Superman technique, which is is where you sort of stand with your hands on your hips and your shoulders back and stand there for a while. I will always, always breathe. I use a lot of how do I control myself by just taking a deep breath in and letting it out. And another very good way of keeping our energy level really balanced is by using the square method where you breathe in and then you hold your breath and you breathe out. And that's all to do with your parasympathetic nervous system. And all of this has an impact again, on how other people then respond to you, how your voice sounds, where your voice is coming from, whether you're sat up straight, and in the diaphragm. So there are, I think, lots of different tools that one can use to really be focused on what is it that I want to project in this point here and now, you know, because we can show so many different faces, you know, the conversation we're having here now today will be very different from the one if we're in the pub having a G&T or a pint of beer. So I think, again, it's about what is it that I am projecting? Who is it that I want to be and what interaction do I want with the people around me? And that's great because we love good energy. Now, a lot of spouses, again, with regards to energy, it would say they're used to going to dinner nights and 
But actually, when it comes to networking, so we talk a lot of spouses around networking and the power of networks and going to a networking event. Could you talk to us a little bit about networking and, and how you see it for military spouses? The networking, it's a funny thing for me. So I have one of these odd brains, which is very capable in some areas, but I'm really rubbish at recognising someone. So I can go to a networking event and be introduced to someone and then walk around the room and five minutes later, not recognise them, not realise I've already met them, which can be slightly embarrassing. So networking events for me can be quite nerve wracking. And I remember this lady once said to me, if you feel nervous, then hold your phone when you go into the room and pretend you're on your phone whilst you then look for somebody to go and speak to and then, you know, go and join a group. I think it gets easier as you get older because you can select a group. And this would be my tip is you go along and just say, do you mind if I join you? You know, hi, I'm so and so. I would even say I feel a bit nervous. I always look for something similar. I would say, you know, I love your shoes or I love your bag, just something to break the ice. And even thinking before you go up to the group or the single person on their own, what is it you want to talk about? What do you want to find out? And being prepared to ask questions and and listen because people, you know, like to talk about themselves as well. So it's very easy to ask people and be interested, you know, how long how long was your journey here today? And so I think it's just practicing a few openers and sharing a bit about yourself, which makes things effective. Talking about networking, you talked very eloquently about the ball of wool and your own network. And a lot of military spouses, if they have had a career, would have established a network. But how important is it that they maintain their networks from their previous role or they establish a network? How important is that? I honestly think for us in the military family, it's easier because we have this expectation of picking up relationships and putting them down and then picking them up again when we meet someone a few years later. There is this expectation that that's normal, which perhaps isn't true when you haven't had a military life. Therefore, there's an advantage. When I again look back at key times when I I needed a job or I needed an opportunity, um, they often came to me through my network. And when I say through my network, they came through my friends. I remember my sister, not to go into too much detail, but I was going through a divorce. Things were really difficult. I was bringing up two young children on my own. And I really could have done with a job that based me from home at a point when we weren't all working from home. And a friend of mine rang me and he said, oh, Joe, I don't suppose you're available to do this 18 month project. It's 50 percent. You need to be based from home. And my sister said to me, you are so lucky because that just came out of nowhere and you've been offered this job. And I turned back to her and I said, well, you know, actually this was 20 year relationship and friendship that I'd had that brought me that opportunity and the trust that therefore had been built because of it. Also, I met somebody scuba diving. They rang me up eight years later, they still have my number and asked me to come and meet to partner at PwC. And that's how I ended up at PwC. And we hadn't had any interaction in that eight years. So I don't think there's a right or a wrong. I think it is, do people remember you as someone that they trust, as somebody that they want involved when opportunities come? Do you bother maintaining friendships? I mean, I'm rubbish at sending business cards, but I do pay people attention when I'm with them. And I think that that is what people remember, how they feel, not what people say. So again, it's the 
what sort of interactions and relationships are you having? But knowing that we are definitely blessed with, you can ring someone up after five years and say, hey, you know, could you help me with this, please? Joe, it's been such a wonderful time speaking to you. The time has just flown past and I'm sure our listeners will be the same when they're hearing this and you talk about your incredible career. Thank you so much for your time today and it's been absolutely brilliant. It's my pleasure and thank you so much for inviting me along. 